This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. It's science and service of communities, so it's about appropriate use of a set of tools. You know, there's no point in doing it just for the sake of knowledge provision for um, for most people. Some people obviously like knowledge provision for the sake of knowledge provision, but from a Māori community point of view, the primary purpose of such activities and such technologies surely are for the betterment of our communities. And reversal of some of these negative colonisation experiences. Do gene technologies have emancipatory value for Indigenous communities? Um, and if so, how do we make that happen? Nā mihi nui. Hello and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko and kanan Last week, we explored the use of genome sequencing during the current pandemic and looked to the future of where this technology might go. A couple of months ago, there was a new record for the fastest human genome ever, which they completed from taking a sample from someone to getting a, well, for all intents and purposes, complete genome in about eight hours. And that's really a game changer. Today, we speak to two researchers, also looking towards this future. Oh, kia ora, ko Philip Wilcox toko wingo, ko ahu aharangi tuarua, ite fari wānaka o, o tāko, uh, ingari, ko toku whakapapa mai Ngāti Rākau Pāka, Ngāti Kahununi Runga Mai Wahine Hoki. So I'm an Associate Professor at the University of Otago um, in the Department of Mathematics and Statistics and I also have a an associate type appointment with the bioethics department here, um, but my whakapapa comes from Ngāti Rākau Pāka from Rumaibahine and Ngāti Kahununi ki in the Tairawhiti region. Kia ora, my name's Chris Print. I'm a professor at the University of Auckland's Department of Molecular Medicine and Pathology. I'm a uh, researcher in genomics, especially the genomics of cancer. Philip and Chris, along with Professor Stephen Robertson of the University of Otago, are co-leads on a genomics Aotearoa programme called Rakeora. The idea is to try and set up a common infrastructure that brings together the good points of many of the current ways of doing things, but also a lot of the good points about how things are done overseas, using some of the new technologies in IT that have appeared in the last two or three years. So taking the best from overseas, using the deep knowledge of Māori collaborators and of course, the knowledge of individuals who allow their DNA and their health records to be used to work out the best way to build a, a research database for New Zealand. And then hopefully this can, in the near future, 
allow the use of this information to improve clinical care. It's not like no one is doing genetics research at the moment, or storing data. There are different projects scattered around New Zealand. We've got lots of high quality but fairly siloed work with people who want to collaborate but there isn't really the technology to enable that. A lot of our individual genomic initiatives in cancer have a fairly inconsistent inclusion of Māori treaty rights and fairly inconsistent in how they address specific and Māori health needs. And some of our ethical and legal frameworks and governance frameworks are out of date. And we're not very well set up to collaborate with industry and take up important opportunities for industrial collaboration. So... The idea behind the Rakiora project is to test options to appropriately acquire, store and manage access to genetic information for healthcare research in Aotearoa. Starting with a pilot, but with the plan that one day it could be scaled up nationally. What you end up with, I hope, is a safe and culturally safe and legally safe environment for New Zealanders where they want to have their genomes available for research to improve medicine in the future. Now, if you're doing this and you want it to be suitable for all kinds of research, you have to account for all kinds of genetic data coming from all kinds of sources. To do this, the pilot program has focused on two ends of the spectrum of healthcare, primary care in rural Tairawhiti and tertiary care in urban Tamaki Makauro. Primary care is the first time you pop along to a health provider, whether that's at your GP's office or at a marae. Tertiary care is specialist services for patients who are in hospital or a health centre. And for this programme, the focus is on cancer genetics, the speciality of Chris and his team. We're really interested in a couple of specific things. We're particularly interested with my colleague Ben Lawrence in neuroendocrine tumours, they're tumours from hormone-producing cells, which have been relatively under-researched. We're also very interested in the immune system in cancer, how our body's immune system can fight tumours, but how tumours fight back against our immune system, but how we can fight the tumours fight back and so on. We're especially interested, though, in cancers where there may be a targeted therapy or an immune therapy. So understanding the biology of the cancer can really make a difference in the clinic rather than just building knowledge. How does genetics help with this? Well, we're all used to the chatter about virus mutation and variants now. Cancer is when the DNA in our own cells mutates in a way that drives the cells to multiply rapidly and spread throughout the body. Our DNA is always under threat of damage, and there are internal repair machines and mechanisms to shut down out-of-control cells. Cancer happens when accumulated DNA mutations override these off-switches. So you can take a biopsy of a tumour and sequence the DNA and figure out what is the difference in the genome of these cancer cells. But, Chris tells me, we mightn't even need to biopsy. We're now realising that there's a lot of information you can understand about a cancer in an individual person by, for example, looking at DNA in their blood. Tumours leak DNA and we can often see that DNA from a blood sample by sequencing the blood. So several members of my team and our collaborators across New Zealand and overseas are now doing small clinical studies where we're trying to follow 
patients' tumours through therapy? Are they resistant? Are they responding to therapy? Are there new mutations evolving the cancers as patients are being treated by sequencing the DNA in their blood? So the technologies are amazing. We're no longer now limited to biopsies of pieces of cancer. So this is happening in the world of research, but in terms of clinical use here in New Zealand? We're on the cusp of this. And in some isolated cases in New Zealand, that's already been done for some cancers clinically. In other areas, there isn't quite the clinical evidence to do that yet. So we're still doing progressively larger clinical studies to check we have an evidence base that this is really going to work. And I guess um, as a small country with limited resources, we're always going to be lagging a bit behind larger countries. So our implementation of these things has been a little bit slower in New Zealand than other places. And I, I guess the real challenge for me in this area is the interface between the research and the clinic, both the idea of building real knowledge among patients and clinicians so they can use and collaborate and research in these areas, but also being able to generate new technologies that are clinically ready. Quite often we'll generate a technology, but we won't really understand the biology behind it because cancers are so complex. So while we may be able to measure some mutations in a tumour in the patient's blood, our science is still lagging behind understanding how those mutations may uh, be used in the diagnosis or the classification of cancer or may be used to work out what the best treatment is. So with this genomics-based future for cancer medicine in mind, setting up a national data set of genomic information for research purposes sounds pretty smart. But why not copy and paste from ones that exist overseas? Well, Aotearoa New Zealand is different. Coming from a Western science biochemistry-trained background, I've learned about the structure of DNA and think of it as a molecule in my cells and the information it encodes as a set of instructions that describe some elements of what makes me, me. I asked Dr. Philip Wilcox what genomic information means in a te ao Māori context. Well, it's part of whakapapa, um, and whakapapa is tapu. Um, it's also, there's an element of mātauranga to it as well, um, even though it may be generated from, um, well, the way we conduct our research, we also collect whakapapa information, so iwi, hapu, and even whānau information, as well as waka information. So all of the, so the DNA information sits within that context of whakapapa. All of that information is tapu. So if it's tapu, it's restricted, and with, because there's tapu, there needs to be specific tikanga around that use of that information, who has access to it, and what are they doing with it? What stories are they telling and putting out into the public arena? Um, the warrior gene was a classic example of, of how not to go about doing that. The warrior gene example that Philip mentions here refers to research into Maori genetics that was presented by Dr Rod Lee at a conference in Australia in 2006. OK, now this could be a whole entire episode in itself, but I'll try to keep this relatively short. Dr. Lee was investigating genes that might be implicated in smoking and alcohol addiction. One that they thought could be involved is a gene called monoamine oxidase A. This gene is involved in breaking down some important molecules in the brain. Dopamine, noradrenaline and serotonin. 
Variants that result in low activity of this gene have been linked to aggressive behaviour in some white men, in a small number of studies, as a reaction to something going on in their environment. In 2004, a journalist dubbed this low activity variant the warrior gene, which, really, is just unhelpful and misleading. Unravelling the interaction between genes and behaviour is ridiculously difficult. But the name stuck. At the conference, Dr. Lee presented unpublished results showing that there's a higher proportion of this low-activity version in Maori men than in white populations. 56% versus 30%. From a sample of 46 non-related Maori men. From what we know, several populations have similar or higher levels of this variant. Africans, Pacific Islanders, Japanese and Chinese. After investigating a subsample of 17 men, Dr. Lee put forward the warrior gene hypothesis that this higher proportion was shaped by natural selection and that this low activity version that influences risk taking gave Maori an advantage as they moved across the Pacific. When these findings hit the newspapers, we got headlines like warrior gene link in Maori violence and warrior gene blamed for Maori violence. Maori communities and geneticists were outraged. An anti-smoking group fears Maori have been misled over research which says Maori men are twice as likely to have a warrior gene than Pakeha men. It's very unusual for somebody to come out with this sort of provocative statement when, as far as I can tell, these studies have not been published in any international scientific journal. I have to admit that when I heard the report, I thought to myself, well, here's another report that tells us how mad, bad and sad we are. Back to Philip. So all of those things are really, really important. Essentially, we've got the, the knowledge, the mātauranga, if you like, or mātauranga pūtāo, that's the DNA sequence, as well as mātauranga Māori, which is the mātauranga whakapapa. We have that as, that as a centre, but the cloak around it is, is tikanga, um, and how to actually utilise that information in an appropriate way that delivers benefits for the study participants and, and for iwi Māori, tangata Māori, throughout the country in a way that also r- reduces or preferably eliminates the risks and, and some of the negative impacts. Negative impacts like the fallout from the warrior gene controversy, but also overseas examples around the principle of informed consent such as the well-known case of Arizona State University and the Havasupai tribe in North America. The tribe's understanding was that the university would investigate blood samples of tribe members solely for genetic markers linked to type 2 diabetes, something that was prevalent within the tribe. The researchers didn't find this link, but for years after, the samples continued to be used for multiple studies, including those into schizophrenia, inbreeding, alcoholism, and the origins and migrations of the tribe. The Havasupai tribe took the case to court. After seven years of litigation, it was settled out of court in 2010. The Havasupai received $700,000, funds for a tribal clinic and school, and the return of their samples. The experience cemented distrust in researchers and reluctance to participate in genetic research across a number of North American tribes. But this then puts these groups at a disadvantage in a world that's moving more and more towards genomic medicine and serves only to heighten inequities in healthcare. 
Alongside his work on the Rake Eora project, Philip is also co-lead on something called the Aotearoa Varium project. It's aimed at developing a genomic catalogue specific to New Zealand. So researchers are sequencing participants' genomes and then identifying the variation in those genomes so that we can try to level the health research playing field. Most of the databases that exist overseas that are used in biomedical research are essentially generated from people of European descent only. Increasingly, we're seeing more data sets coming in from Asia, particularly from People's Republic of China. But those populations don't have, uh, they don't have Māori genomes represented in them, or when they do, they're very, very few and they don't give us a full picture. And so why is that important? Um, in the history of human migration and such like, when a population establishes itself in a specific area, new genetic variation arises through just natural processes. And occasionally those new genetic variants can have a either um, enhancing effect in terms of reducing, uh, say, disease risk, or they can have a risk-increasing effect. Or um, in some cases, they can increase the risk for one thing and then reduce it for something else. And that has happened um, with a particular gene. Like CRAB-RF, right? Like the CRAB-RF gene. So that increases body mass index um, but reduces type 2 diabetes, which kind of seems counterintuitive. Um, but this is an example of some of the differences yeah. that you can find in Correct. the kind of Correct. complexity that's involved in this. Absolutely. And why us just having a database of European sequences of DNA just doesn't cut it. You miss those. And, you know, to me, the Variome has immediate application. Um, there are whānau out there that are quite severely afflicted by genetic conditions that involve very few genetic variants. And so those, what we refer to as single gene or so-called Mendelian conditions, um, that's geeky speak, um, the variants themselves, the causative variants, are not present in those other databases because they've arisen since the progenitors of modern Māori populations separated from the same populations that Europeans were descended from, and sometimes the Asians too. So we see variants that are specific to Eastern Polynesians and variants that are specific to Polynesians only, so that's um, Western and Eastern Polynesians. And then we see variants that appear to only occur in some Māori and not in others. And a classic example of that is the CDH1 variant that causes uh, hereditary diffuse stomach cancer. So Stan Walker is one of the people who had publicised that condition and so that affects only a subset of Māori from um, Bay of Plenty to to the east coast so we need databases that actually cover these things Back in the days everybody just thought that the hill was cursed there was a makutu or something you know we were all cursed but my auntie Maybell and auntie Pauline they thought that there was more to it than just a curse or like these ugly things because it just kept happening through the generations the same kind of cancer and they were dying the same way so they went looking. Stan was told he had the variant when he was a teenager and when he went on to develop cancer he underwent surgery to get his stomach removed in 2017 and 
thankfully, is now back singing and performing. But Philip says, even if there is no immediate solution, just knowing there's a genetic basis can help too. We'll find out one answers even if there isn't a cure or some kind of intervention to help manage or, or ameliorate the condition, Fano still want answers. And, um, you know, in the past, some of the experiences have been that provision of those answers through genetic sciences has been able to dispel alternative explanations such as makutu and things like that. So there's a spiritual benefit to having these answers, um, even if there's not a um, physical health benefit. And when we look at these sorts of applications, we have to look at it from a holistic, Māori-centred point of view in terms of both what the benefits and the risks are. So, you know, with Verion we've done that, and with Rakeora we've also done that. Rakeora is a big project. Chris and Philip are working with experts from Nati Paro Hoora, ESR, the University of Auckland, and with people at NESI, New Zealand's e-science infrastructure. Because when you get down to the nitty gritty of it, it's about setting up quite a complex infrastructure that can achieve many things. It's a challenge um, because we're doing things that have never been done before. We're having to develop a bespoke compute environment which integrates both data storage as well as data governance as well as data analyses in an indigenous context. And that's required the computer scientists to understand the way Tikanga frameworks unravel. We have to un- unravel to them what Māori attributes are and then it's up to them to find the tools to implement. And so it's going slowly but we're making good progress and really happy with the Nessie team that's, that we're working with. Um, in terms of recruitment, um, you know, recruitment has been you know, at the level that we were hoping it would be. When you say recruitment, you mean people who are being part of the project, Correct. allowing their genomic yeah. information to be collected. And health information, yeah. And we hope to have um, clinically actionable results back to them later on in the year. So we have two arms to the study, the primary care arm and the tertiary care arm. And the primary care arm, we have a, a, a partner and is part of the leadership of the broader leadership of the project, and that's Ngāti Parau Order. Um, and I've had um, over a decade now with experience of working in genetic studies. And so they've been able to figure out, well, what's important for them to actually help shape this particular project. So they can actually utilise the database themselves for their own purposes. And it's their participants that we will have clinically actionable information, pharmacogenetic information, um, back to their clinicians later on this year. So how people respond to medicines? Is that that essentially it? Yep. The pharmacogenetic story is is essentially um, the specific medications. There's heritable differences in how people respond. And so some of these have been well known and they've been documented in Eastern and Western Polynesian and East Asian populations, particularly in response to warfarin. And um, it looks like you know, we're going to be able to deliver some results back where some people will need to be made aware that their response to warfarin will differ from others. So that's awesome. It's really good to get short-term uh, runs on the board outcomes for communities and community members and participants so that 
um, they can feel that they've participated in, in a meaningful way. Sometimes the results from genetic studies are either indirect or they're much longer term. The project has suffered delays due to COVID, but both Philip and Chris seem happy with progress. And Chris says that working closely with Maori collaborators across many years has changed how he thinks about his own genetic information. I had my own genome sequenced a few years ago and I've progressively realised that as I look at my own DNA, I'm thinking more and more like my Maori colleagues have been teaching me for so long, but I've never really understood what they meant. The idea that my genome sequence is the not really my sole property, it's something that belongs to my past and my future, to my ancestors and my um, three kids. The idea that it will belong to their kids as well. Um, the idea of linking my DNA to my health records and maybe finding ways to make my DNA and health records available to my children and to others for research to improve health care. You know, when you have your own DNA sequence, it makes a big difference to how you see things. It becomes very real and the responsibility that comes with it, it becomes very real. Having had your own DNA sequenced and with that consideration now that it, you know, it belongs to past and future, would you feel willing to give that information to a research database? Yes, I I have allowed my information, my whole genome information with limited healthcare information to be used in a variety of studies. I've always felt a little bit more comfortable at the start of the study than later on. And I've started to think, well, what's happened with my DNA that I allowed to be used in that study? Who's looking at it now? Could it um, ever be used in a way I don't want it to be used? I guess that's one thing that some of my Māori collaborators, such as Maui Hudson and others, have also told me, that it's a very real possibility that people lose a little bit of comfort over time. What that's taught me is that the commitment of consent for someone to be able to use my DNA and my health data is a commitment to a relationship. It's not a one-off, here you go, you can use it forever. I want to have some ongoing understanding of how it's been used and some ability to make changes in how it's been used if I become less comfortable. So, what's next? If Chris were to gaze into a crystal ball, what does the future of research and clinical practice in the cancer space look like? When I did my PhD in the 1990s, I was one of the last generations to discover a gene. I I discovered a gene with my supervisors, Jim Watson and Jeff Christensen, sequenced it. I got to name the gene, and that was super exciting. Uh, But it's taken a good 20 or 30 years for others in the community to take that gene sequence and really understand how it fitted into biology of lots of different diseases. And my vision is that in 25 years, we would have greatly advanced our understanding of cancer and how tumours evolve and how we can play chess with cancers by rapidly measuring changes and not only in DNA but in a lot of other molecular features of cancers, their metabolism, the immune response and so on and devise therapies that in real time 
can be playing chess with each individual tumour of each individual patient. Wouldn't that be incredible? For Philip, he wants a future that empowers Māori in this space. Yeah, we find that, well, I find that there are good allies, people who wish to do things appropriately by Māori communities and Indigenous communities. And then there are those who either say they are and aren't or just aren't, and they're not so keen and they're very difficult to to change. This has been my, my experience. So going forward, I think what we'd really like to see is is that for Indigenous, led by Indigenous, and the principle of of not about us without us. And that's, you know, those two key things for me are the, are the, are the way forward. And what I think we've done with Rake Ora and Verium has shown that we can actually achieve those things as well as do some good science and knowledge development along the way. Thanks to Professor Chris Print of the Department of Molecular Medicine and Pathology at the University of Auckland and to Associate Professor Dr Philip Wilcox from the Departments of Mathematics and Statistics and Bioethics at the University of Otago. This episode was produced by me, Claire Kincannon, with help from Liz Garten. Tim Watkin is executive producer of podcasts and series at RNZ. Thanks also to assistant producer Ellen Rikers for her work on the show. And sound engineering was by Steve Burge. You can find our website at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld and find us on Twitter or Facebook at RNZ Science. Don't forget to check out some of the other great podcasts on the RNZ website. Just go to the podcast and series tab. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon. Kia pai to wiki. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.